0: The caterpillar lackadaisically traverses what is left of a tattered oak leaf, intuiting that his weight is about to capsize the leaf's entire sparse frame. This little wooly bear has been at nature's buffet, chomping away all day, chonking up like Chihiro's mom and dad at the Japanese spirit buffet in the movie Spirited Away. And now, the poor caterpillar's legs are about to capsize under his crushing weight, and his deep slumber is imminent. He's passed the event horizon of his own caterpillarhood and is swiftly slipping into a cocooned coma. Perhaps he's scared. After all, chomping on leaves and taking naps in the sun is all he's ever known. But if he is, these feelings give no respite to Mother Nature's demands. He's simply eaten too much to function. Whether he knows his compulsive, frenetic leaf binging was for an impending metamorphosis, we'll never know. Things move too quickly for a caterpillar to ponder. He just is and does. As he hangs upside down in his woomy cocoon, he starts to feel funny. Real funny. Deep inside of him, a new type of cell is emerging, almost like an antimatter particle to his caterpillar cells, which scientists call imaginal cells, cells that otherwise lay dormant inside of his tissues, until now. The caterpillars' originally manifested cells start to go haywire, clocking these imaginal cells as a major threat, and they start to attack the imaginal cells in a microcosmic, epic battle. But it is of no use. More and more imaginal cells are created, growing stronger and stronger, dissolving the majority of the caterpillar into some kind of ectoplasmic goo, save for some of the delicate tissues from its organs that remain compatible with the imaginal cells into the next life. What remains of the caterpillar quite literally hangs in a fluid liminal space, neither quite this or that. But trust, these imaginal cells are quite magical. They are compelled through their own divine programming to create something more capable than a paunchy caterpillar. They're destined for a greater purpose, as a butterfly. And finally, the day comes where the monarch breaks out of his chrysalis, feeling it to be more like a cage than a home. His wings are a symmetrical, translucent, kaleidoscope pattern of orange, copper, and crimson that take flight. And he is off. He's no longer in survival mode. Oh no no. He is fully thriving in his purpose, aligned with the other pollinators and capable of traversing thousands of miles to migrate distances equal to his flying bird counterparts. He spends his days mostly soaring high in the sky, while sometimes stopping to take breaks on the ground. He'll take many pit stops along the way to find the best milkweed plants that he can find to eat, as they contain what are called cardenolides, a compound synthesized through the mycorrhizal connection that the milkweed has with its fungal counterpart. These cardenolides are immunoboosting and infection preventative. So he might have a chance to see his life cycle play out in full And indeed, he has the mycelial network to thank for that. Sure, sometimes he's visible to humans, but he doesn't really care to amuse, does he? Sure, if it's the right place and the right time and the human is a respectful, open witness to the present moment, he might make an appearance, maybe as a conduit for some spiritual message from a loved one or something, but this only happens when the human is in complete presenthood, their mind neither in the place of back then or what if, but instead, right now. The human capacity to tap into and harness magic has nothing to do with an egoic need for validation. It's not something we're meant to will or force or try to control for selfish reasons. But it does have everything to do with being here now, feeling aligned and dialed into the connection with everything else, not busy with anything tempting us away from our inner divine selves, Magic is in simply being. Magic is without labels. Existence, whether imaginal or material, is a great river flowing and unfolding, as is its compulsion to do so. But it's only humans who have the choice to fight against that current, or to surrender to it with joy in the flow. If a caterpillar were allowed to fight against its transformation, he would not thrive. He would suffer greatly and then die. The human's greatest lesson is to learn how to surrender with full acceptance while trusting in the greater creation of all things. When we allow things to come and be as they are, and we accept our place in that beingness, we too can be a witness for, and a conduit of this magic, and it is this same magic that can help us forage for morels. For Greenlanders like Finn, the disappearing ice is a weather vane. Proof global warming is happening right here, right now. When you live here, you don't really have to be a scientist to notice the, the changes that we've seen, the world is magic. not a little bit. One hundred percent. every atom from one end of this cosmos to the other is magic, magic, magic. From coast to coast, people are fleeing flames, wind and water. They're very dangerous conditions. and um, in twenty two years of doing this, I've never seen fire conditions we call like, like microphobia, the irrational fear of the unknown when it comes to fungi up the coast the pacific northwest saw a record-breaking heat wave earlier in the summer this is unfortunately our new normal this is the first time it was 116 degrees we have now entered into 6x the sixth major extinction on this planet fate has chosen you to hear about this i I actually think the psychedelic experience is significant because it, it addresses the two biggest problems we face as a civilization, which I would list as tribalism and the environmental crisis. The mycelium is sentient. It knows that you are there. When you walk across landscapes, it leaps up in the aftermath of your footsteps trying to grab debris. It's what everyone thinks is impossible. That's actually what it is. You've had a, a taste of another way to be of a more open, less defended way to be. And you have that memory and you can reconnect to it. It, it's, uh, It's boundary dissolving is what it is. And we have a real aversion to that. When the boundary that's dissolved is serious, we have a real aversion to it. I think engaging mycelium can help save the world. And welcome back to another episode of the Future Mycelium Podcast with me, Jenna Masomi. And today, boy, don't we have a treasure trove of information talking all about morels. And this is a great time of year to do it because the morel season is fast um, fast approaching, rather fast encroaching and fast approaching. And some people in the United States, in the South, for example, might already be starting to find them. This is a seasonal mushroom that tends to run from late March through May and there's a lot to know about it, and I guess I wasn't fully, this is always how it is, when I pick a new episode, I'm a little naive about what I'm getting myself into, and I was like, yeah, morels. People like morels, and then I realized that there's more of a cult following around morels, and so many people like them. They're kind of akin to truffling, But a little bit less dangerous and a little bit less expensive but still still quite expensive but a little bit less expensive so before we get into it in depth i just want to tell you a little bit what you're what you're going to be in store for so when i see there's not something that exists and i have the capacity to make it myself i will try to do that and what i was not finding on the internet um at least in a audio form was a really in-depth info dump, if you will, of everything having to do with morels. What they are, how they grow, the seasonality, where you find them, you know, what kinds and which are the most prized, how to forage. Preparation of them, and then going even deeper, morels versus false morels. And there's another type of false morel. There's two types that we're going to be talking about: the Gyromitra or Gyromitra uh, species, and then the Verpa bohemica species, which I'll get into a little bit later. We're going to be looking a little bit more uh, closely at our bias and mycophobia around false morels, uh, the cultural differences there. We're going to be talking about morels as a conditionally edible species and discussing the questionable uh, potentiality for morel mushroom poisonings, which is not a huge phenomenon but still something I thought interesting to include. We're going to talk a little bit about Eugenia Bone's book, Mycophilia, as chapter four is largely um, describing the culture of morale foraging for like mass consumption. We're also going to be talking about the different kinds of morels, which ones are more prized, the difference between grays, yellows, browns, red, morels, etc. And then we're going to be talking about cultivating them yourself, both indoors and outdoors. We're going to be discussing a little bit about urban morel hacking, the sharing of information around how to grow them yourself. I'm not going to get too much into creating spawn cultures and things like that, because you can just go on YouTube and look up the different recipes for People's kind of jerry-rigged morel slurries that they're dumping in their yards And then we're going to talk a little bit about the danish morel project because this is the first ever cultivated indoor black morel um, Success that's been ongoing since the 70s and 80s and now they're available They're not yet being sold commercially, but they will soon probably be in the market And I wonder how that's going to transform people's eating experiences if they're a bit more readily available. So if this is the first time uh, listening and you don't know a whole lot about mycology, listen to this today. And then I might recommend going back from the beginning and listening to the very first episode. There's an introduction to fungi, making important distinctions. And then we traverse along, well, at least some of my most favorite uh, fungal mm, access points in the first, well, 10 episodes will come out now. This is the 11th and there will be 12. And regardless of whether or not you're new or returning, if you could subscribe, leave a little heart on Spotify, leave a rating, um, please do that. It really, really helps with the algorithm so that whatever message I'm I'm creating is getting out to all those mushroom heads out there <laughs> because my goal is to connect with all mushroom heads and to also make anyone who's new to mushrooms become a mushroom head. So. Thank you for that reciprocal um, giving of uh, listening and rating. And if you'd like me to read, read off your podcast uh, review on the show, I will certainly do that. Um, but just send it to me in an email or on, or on Instagram. And you can find me on Instagram at future.mycelium or my mushroom affirmation page at mushroom affirmations. For business inquiries, you can email me at go under construction a little bit for a minute. Hey, you know, I got a lot of plates spinning in my life and trying to find that balance between what's most important and urgent and what's my passion. You know, these are all things us as adults are trying to figure out how to do. So leave it all to say, I'm very grateful to be here today with you to discuss so much about morels. You'll leave here feeling like you were never an amateur to begin with. <laughs> Let's get into it. Without further ado, everything you got to know about morels. A brief overview, M- morels or morcella, you can refer to them as either, are from the kingdom fungi, obviously, and their division is Ascomycota. So what that means is when it comes to you being in the forest, there's two divisions that you're going to be the most consumed with, and that's Basidiomycota and Ascomycota. Um, So the Basidiomycota is just your general run-of-the-mill capped mushroom, like fruiting mushroom. And Ascomycota, uh, they're actually technically not mushrooms, but I do think as time goes on, the term, the vernacular term mushroom is going to be included in more scientific papers um, just because it's too confusing to not refer to above-growing Ascomycota as as mushrooms. (laughs) Like if it's above ground and it's a fungi, people just tend to refer to it as a as a mushroom so technically any fungi falling within ascomycota division are just fungi but please don't be don't be afraid to call it a mushroom I'm going to refer to them as moral mushrooms um, other fungal educators refer to them as morel mushrooms and all that good stuff they're in the class Pezizomycetes and in the order Pezizales, <laughs> in the family Morcella ca I think that's how you say it and the genus Morchella And genus is more what you have to worry about. Sometimes just think, worry about division and worry about genus when you're getting started with mushrooms or getting started with fungi. Yes, the morale is an ascomycete, and so is a fungi. If you listen to, was it episode six, we talked all about truffles, and truffles are below ground fungi um, or fungi. That's another thing quick too. Should you say fungi or fungi? Mycologists, like actual run-of-the-mill mycologists will tend to say fungi. People from the Pacific Northwest say fungi. I have not warmed up to saying that. So if I refer to fungi, fungi, both are fine. But people who are of higher brow and higher stature tend to say fungi. If you haven't seen a picture of a morel before and you're just listening to this and you're like, what's a morel? If you haven't looked it up already, it is a hollowed out fruiting body. Ergo, I will call it a mushroom. And it's completely hollow on the inside. And on the outside, it varies in colors from gray to yellows, blondes, browns, rusty-ish reds, nearly black sometimes. And they have this sort of brainy, ferruling type of um, cap to them. And when you cut them open, like I said, they're completely hollow. And then the base of the cap is attached to the stipe, like the, the, the stem, right? The, the mushroom stem is a stipe. So how do they grow? So all fungi are attached to the mycelial network underground, and morels have a particular way that they grow. They need to have what is called a sclerotia, which a sclerotia sounds a lot like scrotum, and honestly that might help you remember, sclerotia is this furled up ball of hyphae, and hyphae are the little tips of mycelium, hyphae is mycelium. So all these little tiny tips of hyphae will furl up together into this ball and collect different kinds of nutrients that are vital to the growth of the fruiting body of the morel. The sclerotia lives underground and it's there all the time and a morel cannot grow without it. Now fun fact, uh, not all fruiting bodied fungi like mushrooms need to have sclerotia, but some do regardless of whether or not they're ascomycota division or basidiomycota division that's going to be your black morels like the darker they are they're going to have like all of all the morels have a woody nutty flavor to them that is very umami and very much like a very fragrant type of flavor but the darker the morel the more smokiness it's going to have to it so the darker you're going to get a little bit more of a varied flavor profile the darker black morels, and then there's also a specific type of gray morel that's called Morcella tomatotosa, and that one is a true gray morel through and through from the start of its life to the the end of its life, which not all gray morels stay gray or are of the same species of a species that are specifically gray morels, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. As far as their seasonality, like we said, they grow typically from March through May, and their season is very short-lived, which contributes one of the many contributions to why they can be so expensive. And where will you find them? So, it kind of depends where you're at. If you're in America, how you find them in the East Coast and generally how you find them on the West Coast can vary a bit. Typically, in undisturbed environments, you're going to find the morel living in the most disturbed area of that whole forest. And by that, I mean, if you're looking for morels based on their mycorrhizal connection, like their relationship to trees, you're going to be looking for trees that are dying. (laughs) Specifically, the king of all trees that are known to have a really tight, tight, homey-like connection with the morel is the elm tree. So when you're in the forest and you're looking for morels, you want to be looking for an elm tree whose bark is falling off, but perhaps not completely falling off, like falling off from the top of the tips of the trees through the midway part of the trees, and maybe sometimes almost always all all the way off. And the reason why is that when the tree dies uh, or is dying, that signals to the mycelium of the morels underground that they need to find another place to, to home themselves, Because when the tree dies, then they can't have that symbiotic relationship anymore. So for anywhere from five, maybe even up to 10 years from an elm tree dying, those morels are going to be sprouting up and sporulating. You know, they need to get their spores someplace else by fruiting. Otherwise, they tend to remain underground because they're just vibing and thriving with their tree and they don't have any want or need to go anyplace else. Same thing goes for apple trees, deadened cherry trees, The poplar tulip tree and then the ash tree (laughs) Um, and this is also leaving out um, and not to say that we and we shouldn't forget rather that uh, morels also have mycorrhizal connections to plants Uh, strawberries for example some types of grasses and I'm not super well versed in what those are but if you go and look up the mycorrhizal connections that morels have to other plants it could be uh, some likelihood that you could find them growing around where they grow with other um, mycorrhizal connections with other plants but you will find them in some places more than others now if you're moving out west typically where there's a lot of wildfires morels also grow in an environment of disturbed habitats you'll see tons of them popping up after certain wildfires and as we talked about with uh, Jesse Miller in our lichen podcast was that there's a lot of forest burning not only because of climate change but because forests are so densely packed that it lends themselves to being, uh, to having more voracious fires uh, versus more sparsely treed forests. Um, but the one, the one nice thing about it is that after a burn in the spring, tons of morels can pop up there. Tons and tons. And that's where a big culture of morel hunting actually happens. And like outdoor, not necessarily cultivation, if you will. But this is a pretty safe and controlled environment to find your morels. And we'll talk a little bit more about the culture of morel picking once we get to talking about mycophilia by Eugenia Bone. Sometimes you got to get on your hands and your knees and crawl around the bushes and the brambles and get a little bit dirty when you're searching for your morels. They don't give themselves up easily. Another thing to consider when just going out foraging for mushrooms in general is that mushrooms are a major, majority percentage water. So after a great rain, you might see those mushrooms pop up really fast. Um, What is recommended from a video I watched from Learn Your Land from Adam, he discusses the uh, necessity to return to the same places over and over and over again and just keep looking. Be consistent. Don't be mad if you go to one place one time and don't find morels. You have to go back over again and again and again. Now there's sort of a sub, there's like a division between morel hunters because you've got morel hunters who kind of have it in the family and new morel hunters that might not have a special place to go and look for them. Families in the United States and some places in Europe, for example, and other places of the world, but I'm obviously speaking from a Western lens as an American who lives in Europe, between these two places, there are morel spots that are passed down ancestrally. So your grandfather's grandfather was hunting for morels in the same forest, in the generally same areas as where you will be hunting for them. And that is one of those access points or sort of privileges with morel hunting that us new morel hunters might not necessarily have, (laughs) But I'd also say another thing that I've noticed from morel hunters who are making videos on YouTube who come from families who taught them around about morels and the superstitions of morels sometimes have a limited knowledge about morels, false morels, and are sharing a little bit of misinformation because they're kind of insulated in what was taught to them by their families and because they have access to morels they might not be going out to seek out new knowledge about morels. I found that interesting when I was listening to a few videos from people who are great morel hunters who have their morel family. Patches, um, but we're sharing some misinformation, and, I, and not entirely. But I was like, this is information that needs to be questioned. You know what I mean? And as we'll be discussing a little bit later, the cultivation of morels is something that's becoming more common via a sharing of knowledge about how morels grow, what kind of environments they need, what you have to do to make sure that they grow. That is also a new, much more newer pheno- phenomenon as well. That's breaking down the sort of paywall. Again, I'm using that word paywall with morels. Sometimes it's just luck walking around the forest and oh, there they are. Oh, whoa, there's another one, you know, but if you're just out there enjoying yourself and not trying too hard, that tends to be when you'll find them. People are very superstitious, just mushroom hunters in general, but the culture of morel hunters, very superstitious. And in the United States, there's a huge subculture within mushroom heads that are like morel heads and there's different festivals and sort of rituals (laughs) and competitions For morel hunting specifically, and there's just like this super short seasoned frenzy of morel hunters across the United States. The level of zealousness zealousness there just cannot be beat. Now another question that gets brought up often is, should you cut the morel or should you pluck the morel out of the ground? And what's the real question we should be asking here? Now when you watch a lot of videos, there's people who are like, you ruined the mycelium by plucking out that mushroom. Or other people will say, why did you cut that mushroom? Now you're causing that mycelium to rot and it's not going to grow back. Lots of superheated um, feelings around whether or not you should be cutting or plucking mushrooms. and. Most of this is kind of uh, farcical. It's based off of hearsay and not based in scientific studies. And most, if not all scientific studies, show that plucking mushrooms it causes no issue to the mycelium and sometimes can even be better than cutting them. But other studies also show that regardless of whether you cut or pluck um, when you're harvesting, it doesn't really affect <laughs> how that mushroom or how those mushrooms will grow back in following years. Moreover, the amount of harvesting of mushrooms, like over harvesting or under harvesting, there doesn't really seem to be much of a difference from year to year if you over a previous year to the following year. A lack of harvest could be more likely attributed to seasonal weather changes, the, uh, the, the availability of water. And we have to remember that morels are growing out of the ground from a super, super, super dense network of mycelium. It's not just like plants. Like sometimes if you rip a plant out of the ground the wrong way, it can affect whether or not it grows back the next year. There are billions of spores in a single morel. The amount of mycelium inside of a sclerotia is so much. The amount of mycelium underneath one footstep that you're taking that has so many different types of mycelium for different types of fruiting bodies of mushrooms is huge. It is nearly unquantifiable. So it is a, it's it's more of a our... We're, we're sort of anthropomorphizing the mycelium and kind of giving it human qualities when the bl- the whole network brain-like, and I use that term very kind of hesitantly here, but that sort of brain-like branching neuron-like mycelium, mycelial mycelial mat running below the ground is very, very good with haptic feedback above ground and is very adaptable. Um, So it's more of a question of how you're perceiving mycelium in the first place. So whether you're cutting or plucking, I wouldn't be so quick to judge someone who does it one way or another. So which morels are the most prized morels? In short, I would say probably all of them. (laughs) But the ones that are darker, the dark grays, the dark nearly black ones, or the dark brown ones have, like we said, that added flavor profile that can make them a bit more desired on the market uh, as a gourmet food. But nonetheless, any morel you find that's a true morel is a good morel, in my opinion. Now, what about the preparation of them in a dish? This is another highly politicized issue. After you've cut or plucked them and you brought them home, how are you going to prepare them? Now, some people say you shouldn't prepare them with anything other than salt, pepper, and butter or a fat of your choice. While other people say that you should dredge them and fry them. And I see Eugenia Bone. And I do respect her as a mycophilic um, enthusiast, author, and naturalist herself. She does some pretty elaborate stuff with morels. But I also think she probably has access to them in higher quantities. Which means she can be more bold with how she prepares them. And I see her preparing them though with things that don't have other super overpowering flavor profiles. She does a lot of like cod uh, I've seen her prepare cod and morels together uh, quite a bit. You can go check out her page, um, Eugenia Bone. And she has like so many different morel recipes up, uh, preparing different types of morels. And the the amount of true morels out there, like there's not just like one specific species, right? Like well, there's, what is it? There, there's a lot. There are a lot of them. And as long as they're a true morel from the Morchella um, family, you're going to be safe to eat them most likely. I haven't found any specific morel that was like randomly super poisonous, although we are going to talk about a specific condition um, and quantity of morels that could be eaten that could cause you to be sick. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And moreover, there's a specific way to prepare them at the end of the day, regardless of whether or not you're just cooking them in salt, pepper, and butter or dredging them or adding them to a protein you have to cook them. (laughs) Can't eat them raw. They are conditionally edible and if you eat them raw you can have gastrointestinal issues, you can have what is considered cerebellar syndrome which is like dizziness, um, certain symptoms that are akin to alcohol poisoning or being drunk um, amongst a couple of other things. Morels should not be eaten raw. You need to cook them you need to cook them and you can also boil them the thing is they're fleshy like some mushrooms are super spongy and they just become soppy soppy sop spongy mushrooms (laughs) morales are fleshy and they hold their form so it's okay to rinse them it's okay to get them wet it's okay to boil them totally fine. And you can also store them and dry them and then cook them later. They dry really well because they're hollow inside. Sometimes you have an issue with drying mushrooms where if it's too humid in the environment that you're drying them, they actually won't fully dry and then they'll get bacteria or other molds and things like that rendering them inedible. But because morels are hollow from the inside out, it is super easy. It's like really hard to mess up drying them. But rest assured that anyone who's talking about preparing morels online has a very personal bias and a very strong opinion about how you should be preparing them. And it's most likely that if you've never tried a morel, you would want to probably just prepare them in a way that you could experience their flavor before experiencing their flavor with anything else. Now, we have to talk about, obviously, we have to discuss morels versus false morels. Now, if, if, Morels, the edible ones, right, are conditionably, conditionably, conditionally edible. False morels are one step closer to poisonous. And I have to call out these mushroom hunters who come from family morel hunting farms that haven't done their homework. They've been very quick to write off the Giromitra species of Ascomyceta fungi, and these guys look... People say that, they're, that you could confuse them with morels. I think you'd only confuse them with morels if you had only seen a morel and a gyromitra like once. <laughs> but if you look at them close, like they are not identical twins. They're like fraternal twins at best. I would say there's actually another type of mushroom that looks like it could be an identical twin to the morel. And it is called verpa bohemica. And in almost every way, it looks like a morel except for its... its cap has a it has a skirt and the skirt doesn't attach to the stipe it just hangs there like a dress or like a skirt and also the the cap tends to be very narrow um like not super long otherwise though if you look up a picture of verpa bohemica it looks the same (laughs) it almost looks the same you have to basically cut it down the midline to make doubly sure it's got that skirt but you can you can still eat it but it doesn't taste like morels and it's also conditionally edible you have to cook that one as well Now, the Geromitra species, like there's quite a few different ones, but the one that gets the worst rap is Geromitra esculenta. And first and foremost, I got to say... Don't eat this mushroom. <laughs> with that, I'm gonna tell you about people who do eat it, <laughs> but I, I can't be out here being like, just go pluck a Gyromitra esculenta and plop it in your mouth and good luck. <laughs> no. So the thing with Gyromitra esculenta and perhaps other species of Gyromitra, like there's a few other kinds. There's not just esculenta. There's Carolinia. There's Corfi. There's Gagus, There's all these different kinds. But the Gyromitra esculenta is the one that's known for having this um, compound in it. That's in jet fuel and it's called monomethylhydrazine, or called MMH. Now monomethylhydrazine is a highly unstable compound that if eaten raw, it could, could potentially lead to your death if eaten in really high amounts because it gets into your in, in, intestinal tract and it wreaks havoc if it's eaten raw. But with that being said, <laughs> it is pretty tasty when you eat it. And in some European countries and in Finland specifically, Finland has a government website about Giromitra esculenta, and they reference by saying these Jiramitras, <laughs> like our recommendations for how to forage and prepare them, are only for the Finnish versions, which, which raises a question that I'm still pretty new to. Is like how variant are we talking? Like if you have the same species here versus Finland, like what variations based on the soil and the environment that they're growing in contribute to differing levels of different compounds within those mushrooms, like monomethylhydrazine. (laughs) Is there a same amount of MMH in the Finnish ones as there are in the ones in, in America or not? But in any case, on the Finnish website, they have it in English, actually, a document um, a pdf that you can find quite easily that talks about how to properly well prepare them and they have to be either boiled no nope, actually with the with the I'm 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 going to mess up if I say either or you have to boil them first parboiling them and you don't want to smell the or the wafting uh, boiling vapor that comes off of it, you don't want to be inhaling that because the MMH um, could get into your lungs. <laughs> so I know this just sounds like, there's a lot of things that just turn you off to it. You're like, if I have to worry about jet fuel getting into my intestines, maybe I don't want to eat it. And to that, I'd say, you're right. However, there are pe- the people have been eating Giromitra esculenta for a long time and have been preparing it properly with no issues. And another thing too is that um, kind of like the Amanita uh, muscaria we talked about in episode four, which was a seasonal episode called Santa's Amanita. But regardless of whether or not it's Christmas, I would still recommend you listen to it if you're interested in the Amanita, because it will be growing soon, is that it has varying levels of inebriating um, chemicals in them, right? Or compounds, ibotenic acid and muscimol, um, which you find in the cap of the, of the Amanita muscaria, which is the toadstool, right? It's the fly agaric. It's that very iconic mushroom, the Mario mushroom. It has varying amounts of inebriating compounds in it. And you just can't tell from one to one to one in the forest, like which one has like a hot dose (laughs) of those, of those compounds that can make you feel sick or make you feel drunk or, you know, help hallucinate or whatever. Same thing with geromitra esculenta. The amount of MMH from one to another is varying. There's not a stable amount in, in, in it, but regardless, you're going to want to boil and then you're going to want to cook them. And some people will say that they'll eat a few and they'll be fine, but that the MMH can build up in the body over time. So if you're eating too much of it, then you could have some issues. However, when I was reading about other species, specifically Geromitra carolinia, this one is not known for having high levels of MMH at all, and that it very likely is just as edible as a morel uh, species. Nonetheless, Gyromitras across the board look pretty similar, except for some variations in their shape and coloring. And if you're not a professional idea of mushrooms, you know it would be pretty hard to tell. <laughs> but when you cut them open, Gyromitra carolinia, Gyromitra um, esculenta, especially, cut them down the middle. It's like cutting open a, a cauliflower. They look like cauliflower on the inside. They're not hollow at all. So in that way. It's even harder to, to confuse them with a morel. But nonetheless, that if one decides to prepare Jura they are pretty delicious. They're delicious, conditionally edible, potentially poisonous mushrooms. And if you don't feel comfortable with that, I get it. Let sleeping dogs lie. Now, actually, we do want to talk a little bit about these tiny cases of morel mushroom poisonings that have happened mostly in Spain and Catalonia and these might be a specific variant of morel or a morel that's growing. They found that these mushrooms that grew near the river and specifically had a mycorrhizal connection with ash trees when eaten in large quantities have caused gastrointestinal duress and cerebellar syndrome. Now cerebellar syndrome has to do with the with your brain and how the compound can affect your brain your coordination your ability to speak like slurred speech like put someone who's got cerebellar syndrome you know face-to-face with somebody who's drunk and you might not be able to tell them apart um people have been hospitalized from eating morels like these are very very tiny cases like so so small so please don't be afraid of eating morels like the overwhelming majority of people prepare them properly indulge in them abundantly and have no issues but there are a couple of cases so be careful if you're in Catalonia plucking them from ash trees and eating them in large quantities (laughs) Um, that people will will say that they have tremors um, inability to speak properly they feel funky. They don't feel normal, but the symptoms, even if they're hospitalized, just resolve on their own after like a day, maybe up to three days, and then you're fine. And it's also these people who are coming in, were eating very high doses of these morels. And I can't be, I can't be super certain, I can't be super certain on which specific morels they were. I just know that they grew on the ash trees there. <laughs> and there was, um. and, and uh, perhaps another thing too, there was another one, there was one specific case of people, pe- people or a family who ate these specific morels from this ash tree, they got ill, uh, the The parents got ill, and then the mother actually passed away from complications. However, it is believed that they ate rancid morels, and big tip, do not eat morels if they don't look edible, if they smell funky, if they look old, don't be too proud to toss it in the trash. <laughs> because if you're eating a moldy anything, you know, especially like a moldy mushroom, a moldy conditionally edible mushroom, like, sorry, not sorry. If you're getting hospitalized for that, like you should have thought about that. And I understand if you're like, this is the only morel I've found. Like no morel is better than eating a, 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 a decaying morel. Okay. <laughs> so please be careful. And I couldn't find any cases that were the same as this in the United States um, with getting cerebellar syndrome or getting gastrointestinal upset from eating morels in the United States. This was like more of a European, a very localized phenomenon, but still something I found very intriguing. We're going to talk a little bit more about morcella and like mushroom variants once we talk about the Danish Morel Project as well. Because it's very interesting, it really questions our idea of like, like the uniqueness of, of individual mushrooms or fungi, even if they're the same in every way, DNA morphologically um, speaking. Now let's talk a little bit about Eugenia's book Mycophilia. As uh, this book is a great book for anyone who wants to get some information on mushrooms across the board, but they don't want to be bored with the details, Mm, Eugenia Bone is very good at discussing things from a very storytelling point of view, and she does the same with her connection to mushrooms. And I, I referred to this book in my Truffle Podcast episode as well. That was chapter six from this book, and then chapter four informed me a lot about the Hunters and gatherers and thieves of mushrooms, specifically morels. And now in the beginning, we were talking about in the West, um, certain mushrooms uh, or or rather morels will grow in these disturbed environments after a big forest fire. She talks about what that looks like when the morels pop up and who is foraging them, who is selling them, the whole culture of it. And she says the majority percentage are Laotians and then Latinos and then white people. Um, who go out in this frenzy in these areas, these different burn sites that can vary from year to year to go and um, pluck them. And Eugenia wrote, in short, that wild mushrooms in general may be one of the largest legal cash-based transactions in the USA. Morel mushroom distributors are secretive. And the best estimate that she could come up with from, from like how many mushrooms were both foraged and then sold was from 2005. <laughs> Hello, 2005. Which was uh, 700,000 pounds of morels were picked, and half were shipped overseas, and that was valuing at $300 million. She gets a kind of granular, more with the culture of, like, with the mingling of different ethnicities of people, and also the question of, like, how sustainable is it to be a morel morel picking when people come in large flocks and are polluting the ground and distressing the ground when they're coming to these sites to hunt for the morels. Um, But she talks about it very authentically and discusses that morels was one of the reasons why she wanted to get into um, like the mycological societies that be. um, Because she wanted to eat morels and she wanted to have more access to them. And like we said, they're kind of expensive. So she got into the Mycological Society in New York and they had this um, activity once a year, I think it was once a year, called the Morel Breakfast. And she went there so she could go and forage or try attempt foraging with other people who were foragers. And then she also went to some morel competitions, like actual gaming competitions to see who could find the most morels, who could find the biggest morel, who could find the smallest morel. This is a thing that happens in the United States in spring every year. And very delightful book. I've been reading through it. Ba- I've been reading this book based on my needs for the podcast, which is most of my reading outside of the other work I'm doing in my life. Like my leisure reading is reading for the podcast. So, um, so far, so good. She is really great at explaining stuff. She shares, um, she's an excellent my co-chef and I'd really recommend this book. And one more thing. She also talked about morel hunting being akin to gambling or playing the slots. <laughs> Now, let's talk a little bit about um, different colored morels. There's specifically, and I'm still a little confused on this, different colors of morels. There are grays, there are yellows or blondes, there are browns, there are near blacks, and um, they have they kind of vary a bit in their flavor. However, the most prized from what I found online, I mean, there are the blacks, but also the grays. The grays tend to be the most delicious. And there is one specific gray uh, Morchella, called morcella tomentosa. <laughs> Did I say totemosa before? But leave it to say morcella tomentosa. This is the only true through and through gray morel from the start to the end of its life cycle. Otherwise, most gray morels that you will find are actually the same species as other yellow morels. Now what I'm finding on the internet about how the gray morel becomes the yellow morel is a little bit mixed. Um, On the one hand, I found some people say that they, they integrate, they're an integrating species, meaning that the gray morel and the yellow morel are the same, but I can't find for sure because I read somewhere in a couple of sources that gray morels do not turn into or lighten into lighter morels, but rather they refruit like that mycelium refruits as yellow morels but then in other sources there were people saying that the gray morel will ripen into a lighter color and when i was searching this over and over again i could not find a more concrete answer on this and it was a little frustrating so that answer is not fully understood, believe it to say that if you find a gray morel, it's probably going to taste good. <laughs> That's all I can really leave you with. And something as I was doing more of this research um, is just that there's pretty limited funding for researching morels and false morels in general beyond how they can be cultivated for commercial use. Like if there's no money and just dabbling and finding the fun, you know, just querying about false morels, like just looking at the variants and just studying them and studying the monomethyl hydrazine, like it's under research researched, you know. Um, There's a lot of under-research with Amanita muscaria. There's a lot of stuff that people just aren't putting funding into, and I wish they would. I wish scientific, you know, funding was just for the sake of learning about stuff without there necessarily being an end goal because that really limits, you know, what information I could even bring to this podcast today. I'm always left with more questions than answers. Now let's talk a little bit about cultivating morels. Now, uh, outdoor outdoor cultivation of morels has been a thing that's been going on for a while, I believe since the turn of the 20th century, if I'm not mistaken. Could be wrong on that. Don't quote me on that. But it's been happening for a minute. And it's a little bit easier to cultivate them outdoors because there are less variables that you have to account for, like the soil that the morels already grow in is already there. Creating your own spawn and throwing it in your lawn and letting the mycelium find its way to the best habitat like, that's just kind of an intuitive thing. Um, but indoor cultivation is something that requires so many more variables that you, that you have to figure out and then control yourself. Um, but what I would say about both indoor and outdoor cultivation of morels and just the sharing of how to hunt for even truffles or sharing how to grow and cultivate truffles or to to create more access of information for growing and sharing um, you know, the production of these gourmet foods is that it becomes more accessible to more people. And I just think that's better because the more accessibility there is, then it's less dangerous to be in the fields, (laughs) like hunting for them. And just in general, like nature is very abundant and has the potential to be even more abundant. And when we share and really listen to what nature is telling us about what it needs in order to thrive, then that is one of the ways we're learning the language of nature. And when we're, when we're learning that language of nature and then sharing that, na- that nature information with others, it creates an environment of more symbiotic sharing. I don't know, less classism around it, because a lot of people who are getting access to Morels and truffles are people who have a lot of money to access it, you know? And I don't really think anything in nature should be behind such a a high paywall. I guess paywall is the word of this episode today. So uh, I think this is a pain point for a lot of people who like mushrooms, because if you go on YouTube, there's a culture. Uh, subculture if you will of people teaching other people their tried and true methods of sporulating and growing morel mushrooms how to germinate them if you will or how to create your slurries you know the different compounds and components that you would put together to create that slurry and then toss it in your yard there's a a couple specific videos from this guy I think he lives in like downtown like not suburban Chicago but, like, not necessarily inner-city Chicago, but lives in the city but has a backyard, a pretty decently large backyard. And he and his kids created... um, like the concoction to grow the morels in their yard. And they have videos of the morels like popping up and they're just like plucking them in this tiny square, relatively tiny square backyard. And they're like, you can do this too. And then people are commenting being like, this is fake. You didn't do this for real. (laughs) Um, There's another woman on YouTube, uh, the modern witch doctor. And I was listening to her um, episode in passing while I was walking into town the other day. And she was sharing a different way that she was creating, um, a a morel slurry that she was throwing her in her yard and things that she has um, had happen with it things to anticipate um, different tips and tricks Um, but the 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 big takeaway with morel um, cultivation outdoors as an individual who wants to get into it is that it's a little slippery it's a little trial and error you know um, mushrooms or fungi in general exist on a spectrum of hmm, how would you say tenuity maybe like some mushrooms grow very easily and like the environmental control factors is that too scientific to say like some mushrooms like oyster mushrooms are very easy to grow they don't need much they're just chilling vibing eating cardboard living their best life okay but then other species of fungi like truffles and maybe also by association morels they have more limited um I guess parameters around how they will grow and when they will grow and why. (laughs) And, uh, you know, morels are not cheap to the human eye. They're not just going to give themselves up, even if you're just hunting for them in the forest. They're hard to find. They're not the easiest to grow, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. It's more like nature. I feel like morels, like nature is giving humankind a challenge. They're like, you want to grow these? Okay, well then you got to pay super close attention to how nature functions. And that's kind of the whole point is like more people need to understand how nature nature functions and not be so disconnected from it. And morels are a pretty seductive and alluring way to do so. Eugenia Bone, just to go back to the book too, she she quoted that people are horny for morels. <laughs> and um also truffles have been referred to as having this aphrodisiac quality to them that smelling them has the, sort of induces the same effects as Eugenia Bone's um, uh, reference about morales. And when I was, I'm, I'm one of the students of Voices from the Underground from Fantastic Fungi. So I like paid the, I think it was a hundred dollars to get access to all this information from people who've contributed to Fantastic Fungi or people who are contributing to mycology in some capacity or another. I haven't even gotten through like an eighth of the videos. There's so much there. Um, But I was going through the series from the director of Fantastic Fungi, Louis Schwartzberg, who was talking with people about like how nature seduces us and like what beauty is. And he was having, I can't remember who he was having the conversation with specifically, but they were talking about seduction as a means of survival. And that if something is seductive and alluring, then that will progress through, you know, a lineage versus something that is not as eye-catching or as interesting to human beings. And Morels have done a great job across the centuries <laughs> with their appeal and their taste and their, you know, you, you yeah, the the videos on YouTube, there's a lot of different kinds and they talk about the spawn that you need to create, the grain spawn, all of these different things to consider about the soil, liming the soil. It was very similar to learning about a black truffle cultivation as well. They have a lot of overlap there. Now indoor cultivation is a little bit different and I want to talk quickly about the Danish Morel Project. Now, the Danish Morel project are spearheaded by twins, identical twins, named Jakob and Karsten. You'd say Jakob in a Scandinavian language, like Danish, Norwegian, or Swedish. Jakob and Karsten Kirk. And they have been laboriously and secretively working on perfecting and have perfected their palate cultivation system. Now what I mean by that is they're growing these morales on these giant pallets So if you wanted to move them you could use a pallet lifter right or a forklift and lift up these pallets and move them around. <laughs> they have a few things that contribute to the growth indoors and there's a lot that they're keeping secretively. So based on what I've read I will share what I've what I've read and what I think so what I say might be a little bit speculative. I also sent them an email last night or yesterday asking some follow-up questions that I don't think would have broken their trust with me. Actually, we could check really quick and see if they responded. I don't think they probably did, though. (laughs) Yeah, I sent them an email, and I don't know if they're going to get back to me um, soon or not, but if they do respond, I will include it in whatever future episode they do respond to me. Maybe it'll be next episode if they do. But I introduced myself, and I asked them a few questions that are... I don't think they have answered on their website. You can go to the danishmorelproject.com and you can read everything about what is available um, to the public about their patented indoor cultivation of black morels. Um, But a couple things I asked them, I said, although the cultivation of black morels is a a success for you, there has yet to be any commercial sale of your morels. Could you elaborate on why they aren't available for sale yet? Is there a lot of bureaucracy involved or maybe people um, trying to bet them for (laughs) their morels? I stated in my second question, your website states you've collected genetic variants across certain European countries and Turkey and have saved the most prized variants. How do you decide on which variants are prized? Is it based on their flavor they're taking to your artificial soil, growth rate and yield perhaps, etc.? (laughs) This might be a little nerdy. I hope I'm not losing any of you guys with this. But they discussed how they have saved their most prized genetic variants of different morels across Europe and Turkey. And I'm wondering which of those... They did explain a little bit about the ones that take to the soil, I think, had something to do with it. And their growth rate. Um, Because obviously output and how quickly they can grow is pretty important with cultivating them commercially. I wondered if there was anything else. I asked them, would you say your black morels are of the same taste as prized outdoor growing morels? Um, because there are plenty of factors that can could contribute to the flavor profile. And um, there's a lot of things that could perhaps reduce the flavor of, of morels as they have a decently complex flavor that is lent by, or that, you know, is lended by the soil and all of the different compounds that are going on underground. Same thing with prized expensive truffles. I'll let you know if they respond to me. But yeah, so they have this palette cultivation system. You can go on their Instagram as well, and you can see them growing them in these giant palettes. They're black morels, which are of huge, significant culinary interest as they are considered a gourmet morel. And they're grown in what they call their artificial morel and truffle soil. (laughs) And artificial, it doesn't mean that it's made up of plastic or anything like that. Their soil is made from all natural compounds, but they have found a way to perfect their soil to yield high outputs of morels year round indoors, which is a pretty big feat. They've also taken samples from truffles because truffles, as we said, truffles and morels are both from the Ascomyceta uh, division, Ascomycota division. And um, another thing that I don't think we talked so much about was the sclerotia. <laughs> so what they're doing is they're saving scleroshi, sclerotium, from the favorable variants of the morel samples that they've collected. And I think they had collected nearly 350, but about 100 of those they weren't able to get to because they expired. Because they're just like a small team, if not just the two of these these twins. Um, preserving all of these different sclerotia. And so they're basically creating this sort of Walt Disney cryogenic chamber for these sclerotia Um, by freezing them in liquid nitrogen. And then they can be thawed and used to make more sclerotia for their, you know, palates in the future. But all of their fresh morels are growing sclerotia too. So, you know, they'll never really run out, I don't think. If you're interested in the Danish Morale Project and want to hyper-fixate on exactly how they're doing what they're doing, you can head over to their website and you can check them out. You know, now to wrap things up, to conclude, this is all the work I did so you didn't have to. I hope it was informative. I hope that you will take away this knowledge and be able to head out to the forest with a little bit more um, confidence in yourself. And that's also part of the foraging um, and gathering of things right you know part of it is just confidence believing that you can do it trusting in your own intuition to go out into the forest to hopefully not get lost to bring your tick spray with you and to not be afraid to get a little dirty looking for your morels obviously the identification of mushrooms is a visual process we, we, we don't all have noses that can smell a specific species of mushrooms who can so if you go over to the future mycelium page, I always put up visual aids for the episode. Head on over there and you can see that I've posted photos of different morels, gyro the verpa bohemica, bohemica, <laughs> however you say it, a couple other photos that are pertinent to today's episode, just so you can get a little bit of a better, better um, hold on everything. And I'm going to be including all of my sources and when I say all of my sources as many as I can find from my search history because this has been two weeks of one to two hours a day researching and reading and saving pages and reading articles all about morels and then distilling it down into this episode today. Um, it was pretty info-dense. It was. I hope it wasn't too scientific for you. And of course, if you have any questions or you feel kind of lost when you're listening to me talk about this stuff, I'll always follow up in, an, in another episode in the future to clarify anything. I have done that in the past. But so far, so good. Nobody has really reached out and tried to correct me on anything. We got one review um, who emphasized how much she liked and felt I could carry the show without necessarily having guests on. So that was nice and partially contributed to why I felt confident discussing morels on my own today. Now, I actually have to let you all in on some tea. I've never tried a morel. (laughs) Could you believe it? I just, I just educated you on morels. How many of you have eaten morels? And here I am over here, having never tasted one. Although I know where I can buy some dried ones, they're at this store. I just haven't dropped the pretty penny on them because for a little bag, a little bag, tiny bag. They're about 300 kroner for a little bag. 300 kroner is not 300 US dollars, but I mean, give or take, I could be on a bad day. (laughs) It could be 40 US dollars for a little bag of mushrooms. And I felt like maybe I should just do it anyway, just so that I can say I tried them when I started the podcast episode today. But I was like, you know what? No. I'm going to share all this information and now hopefully I have enough knowledge myself so that I can go out and look for morels because the snow is melting here pretty quickly. Oh, and another thing that I didn't tell you guys about that that can lead to higher mushroom morel yields in the spring is if your winter wasn't too hot or cold and your spring's not too hot or cold and you have a decent amount of rainfall. Because some years morels come early or come late or they don't come at all or they come in much smaller quantities. And like we said, that has a lot more to do with the climate than anything else from what I've read. Yeah, I haven't tasted a morel. It's on my list, but I hoped I hope that if I got so hands on with the Morel podcast today that the when I'm out in the next month or so, I will I will be able to report back on their flavor. And I still haven't tried a tried and true truffle yet either, but we're going to manifest it and I'll get back to y'all and let you know when I do. But hey, it goes to say that anyone can discuss this stuff without actually having any experience with it. So this was all theory today, and maybe I've taught morel hunters a thing or two myself. And regardless of whether or not you're a butterfly or you're a mushroom, when we humans are walking out in the forest, there's always an invitation. And that invitation is to let go of your worries, to not think too hard, to not be too stuck in the past, but to just experience the present moment as it exists today. (laughs) So with that, I'm going to leave you all to it and we'll see you in the next one. Bye. Now, of course, before we go, we have to thank our sources. And spoiler, there were many, and I've written them down here. I hope I included all of them. And some, I'm just including entire websites because I read everything that was there. And we'd be here for a long time if I were to include every single individual source. But starting off, we have the book Mycophilia by Eugenia Bone, Chapter 4, and the footnotes for Chapter 4 towards the end of the book. We have the danishmorelproject.com and they have just limited pages and posts. Extensive posts. But the whole website, there's not like tons of different tabs there, but I scoured their entire website to learn about how they're cultivating morels indoors. Um, same, same thing goes for www.thegreatmorel.com. I read everything <laughs> as much as I could. There's a lot there and a very, very great source for those of you looking for information about morels and a great meetup for people who are morel heads. We have the Finnish governmental website about how to prepare the false morels. And that website is www.rokavirasto.fi slash haku, haku, H-A-K-U slash question mark query equals sign esculenta. And the name of that article or the document PDF was False Morel Fungi, Poisonous One Raw, Gyromitra Esculenta by Laurel Lorchel. One of the sources that I got through Eugenia Bone's book was Morelmania.com, and this was an archive of tons of newsletters written about morels, and I read every single one of them. And some of the sponsors for that newsletter were from Fungimag.com. So I went to Fungimag.com, and I looked looked through all of their archived magazine newsletters, or they're just magazines, and their major stories from their magazines are available to be read online, otherwise you have to buy the mags in person. Or just have a physical copy, and every third or fourth spring edition has um has a, a story about morels or false morels. So I read every single one of them, and I have them written down here. I believe all the ones that I read, and they are as follows: the first one is Age Old Question of Edibility: A Primer by Michael Bug. Another one is Early Morels and Little Friars, or a short essay on the edibility of Verpa Bohemica by Paolo Davoli and Nicola Sita. The next is Forest to Table and Beyond, a primer on mushroom preservation by Britt A. Bunyard and Tavis Lynch. And then we have Jira Mitrin, Poisoning, more questions than answers, by Dennis R. Benjamin, M.D. Morel Mushroom Toxicity, an update by Joseph Piccaras. <laughs> I believe that was all of the stories that I read from Fungi Mag. And then I had a diagram. This is actually a picture that I got from ResearchGate.com, titled Marcella Life Cycle Proposed by Vulcan Leonard. And then there was a story written by a chef called uh, The Forager Chef, whose website is ForgerChef.com, and that post was titled Cooking a False Morel or Giro Mushroom. Some more in-depth morel information I found from, I believe is a professor from my university, was from the botany department, and it's titled The morel Life Cycle. Uh, I believe this is the same Volk as the diagram. Thomas J. Volk, Department of Biology. Um, and this is botit, botit.botany.wisc.edu slash T-O-M-S underscore fungi slash And that was a website with a bunch of information, or, or a page rather, with a bunch of information about morels then I read a couple of articles about butterflies, and one in particular had to do with plant fungi, um, the impact how monarch butterflies fight disease, by science.com, and there was no author or date that I could find on that. Another website, www.restaurantnorman.com, slash r-gray-and-yellow-morels-the-same, <laughs> and then uh, articles titled Are Gray and Yellow Morels the Same <laughs> by Michael Wilson? And that was on the February 18th, 2021. Another website, wwwmorelinfocom 2020 slash 05 slash Morcella coloring time dash grays dot And that's titled "Morchella coloring time grays and yellows and blacks. And that was from Sunday... May 3rd, 2020, I could not find the author. And now lots of YouTube videos. <laughs> the first one is Ton of Black Morel Sclerosha is the title from the YouTube channel Mush Farmer. The next is What It Takes to Find Morel Mushrooms from Learn Your Land. Another one from Learn Your Land: Six Reasons You Can't Find Morel Mushrooms. And then another one is Morel Mushrooms Cooked Perfectly Forest Food by Town Sens. Another is How to Grow Morel's Propagating Slurry from Modern Witch Doctor. And there's one more, How to Grow Morel Mushrooms Indoors in Less Than Two Months by Curative Mushrooms. If you go and just look up like morel cultivation, there's a lot of videos. And I think across all of my different Google accounts, I had watched a few others that I didn't include here. But safe to say like the first main page of morel cultivation I watched and did inform this. Mm podcast today. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you in the next one. Bye.